Today's episode of the No Fun City podcast is brought to you by Quest Trade. There's a new world of investing where the fees are low and you come first. It's time to switch. Head over to questtrade.com to check out do-it-yourself, self-directed investing. Take matters into your own hands, build your own investment portfolio with a self-directed account and save on fees. Make your money work harder. Questrade is Canada's fastest growing online brokerage with over 21 years experience in the Canadian market, $18 billion in assets under administration, and a nine-time winner of the best managed companies in Canada. And you could rest assured knowing that your money is in good hands. They go above and beyond to protect your account with an additional $10 million in private insurance so you know your money is safe. For more information, check out questtrade.com. Just use the link in the description below. On to our show. Welcome to the No Fun City Podcast, episode 21, I believe. Still unsure. Last episode, we kind of had like this run around. So don't know what episode this will be, but it'll probably be episode 21. Before we get started with our interesting guest, just got a bit of a housekeeping to do. Um, I just want to say I've got a few messages like emails, stuff like that from people asking me, hey, information about podcasts, just like how did you start a podcast? Why did you get into it? Why did you do it? Um, And then a bunch of questions about the tech side of it. Um, So I just want to say that I decided I'm going to do a solo podcast for the next episode. And I'm going to dive into my entire podcasting experience so far. So if that interests you and, you know, you just want to hear me talk as opposed to a guest telling their story, um, that's what's going to be up next. And then we're going to go back into the guest format. And speaking of guests, today I'm joined by Canadian scholar and Vancouver resident, Thomas Gerard. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks. Glad to be here. Awesome. So how are you today? What's new? What's cracking in the wonderful world? Um. You know, everything, everything that ordinarily keeps me busy, except with the pandemic um, angle, which uh, changes it all. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, actually, I want to start with that was the pandemic really threw me a huge curveball as well. I'm kind of happy that we're hopefully seeing what is the end of the pandemic. Uh, but who really knows? But yeah, it's it's affected me in so many different ways itself. Like, And I'll get into this actually in the next episode that I was just mentioning um, even weight, I've gained 25 pounds since the pandemic. Part of it is because I was injured and I couldn't actually, like I was in a motor vehicle accident and I couldn't like go work out. I couldn't run and slowly, but surely I'm starting to be able to do those things now. But even with the pandemic, like gyms were closing all of that stuff. So it really took away my active lifestyle and I ended up gaining like 25 pounds. So I don't know if, I hope no one else notices that, but I definitely have noticed it. <laughs> um, but I'm yeah, a, I'm a graduate liberal studies uh, major at SFU, and we're back on campus now. And uh, mm. you know, really small class on campus. And I kind of looked over at this guy. I was like, "Is that Al?" Because he looked so like fit and so like different. And uh, I realized it was pandemic. Uh, <laughs> Wait, it's, uh, he it's got bizarre. He got thinner, or he, he got, got thicker. He got I think more muscular. <laughs> oh, lucky him. <laughs> I got to ask Maybe. him what he's been doing during the pandemic because I've was... obviously been doing the wrong thing. <laughs> I was definitely wondering that. All right. Well, Thomas, why don't you uh, give the listeners a little bit of a background on yourself? 
And um, I guess your studies, to be quite honest, like we're going to dive into that kind of stuff. But who is Thomas Gerard? Sure, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, so um, I'm a four-time emerging scholar, um, and I've taught undergraduate level interaction design in three countries, in China, India, and Canada. Um, currently, I'm a graduate liberal studies major at Simon Fraser University, and I was accepted to Oxford and Royal College of Art. Um, so kind of a big commitment to, to studying and to this idea of lifelong learning. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty old to be a student, but, uh, but I do feel like I kind of fit right in these days because of that idea. Um, you know, one of, one of my highlights was I gave a TEDx talk at Emily Carter University of Art and Design in 2019, um, and then um, included that in my first book, which is called Emerging Scholar, Gratitude of an Award Recipient. Um, along, with, uh, along with other kind of accoutrements of being a scholar. Um, and so they all kind of come together in that. Mm -hmm. So for people who might maybe not be aware of what a scholar is, is, is it like a lifelong student? Are you like Van Wilder in a sense? Have you seen that movie? Super old, but... I don't know Van yeah. I'm old, but I don't know that movie. <laughs> so Van Wilder, I think it was uh ryan reynolds was in it i think if i'm not wrong and he okay. just played like this uh university student who just stayed in university for his whole like you know far past longer than he should have type of thing but it was more of a a crack joke kind of thing you know he was like a partier and living the party lifestyle and the story goes that you know he ends up like changing his ways whatever and like gets out of school and I mean, like Van Wilder is just a comedy movie, but and he was by no means a scholar. <laughs> but uh, but in a sense, a scholar like, you know, you're learning for life almost. Right. Or you're learning at least like uh, very in depth as far as like one or two major topics go. So, yeah, like what to you, I guess, would qualify anybody as a scholar? Yeah, I think a scholar is just kind of a formal word for a bunch of activities that, that make up my life. You know, I started, I started my undergrad in communication design. I started studying at Emily Carr University of Art and Design when I was a teenager, um, you know, first doing part-time courses, non-credit courses, then, um, um, then shifting to um, credit courses as a part-time student and eventually starting as a full-time student um, in, in first year of studies. Um, you know, kind of spending about seven years to do my undergrad. Um, and then um, and then as a designer, kind of going into industry, but quickly um, getting a lot of feedback that I should be teaching design. And so quickly moving is into a lecturer position at a university, um, going overseas, um, teaching design in, in India and China, and kind of um, acclimatizing myself to that way of life, this idea that people will perceive me as somebody who, who they can learn from mm -hmm. um, and, um, and trying to share my stories in that way. Um, you know, wanted to do the master's right away, but could never figure out logistically how to do it. Um, came back from being overseas, came back to Vancouver in, I guess, 2014 and won an Emerging Scholar Award. I wasn't even in school at that point. And, um, and, and it was this kind of bizarre occurrence, like how could someone see me as an Emerging Scholar? I guess now reflecting on it, it does make a lot of sense, but I could never really make sense of it at that point. Um, but after I won that award, I started teaching at Emily Carr and taught there for about four years, um, teaching design there. And, um, and, and then finally found a way to, to join this master's in 2019. 
um, very timely because of the pandemic. I was able to do the work from home thing um, and basically be a, be a scholar from, from an apartment, which was very nice. Um, I guess um, I guess it was never a choice for me. So what is a scholar? Um, for me, it's uh, the coincidences of life that 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 kind of focused on learning. And um, you know, early on, I was called a lifelong learner, and maybe that stuck with me. So maybe it's this idea, yeah, like you're saying that um, that you're a student for life, not and and also in a formal way. Um, you know, you're always you're always taking courses for credit. I guess so. Yeah, it's uh sorry, I had to mute my uh microphone there. I have a dog and he pants. And in some of the episodes you could really hear him either licking himself or panting, and it irritates me, and I'm sure it irritates the guests. So I'm gonna have to mute myself every now and then. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting when you're talking about learning for life, because I feel like um in a in one sense, if you're not in school, you're still kind of learning for life, right? Like you're growing, you're developing in your career, whatever it is. But when it comes to, I guess, like going about it in a scholar sense, are you, are you pushing yourself in one uh, direction and one career path? I mean, I know you're involved in like the design oriented side of things, but um, are there other aspects of, I guess, like uh, education or school that you are also looking at, or you've looked into uh, outside of the des design realm? Yeah, you know, this all started when I won this 2014 RBC Emerging Scholar Award. And then after that started winning more Emerging Scholar Awards. And then somebody asked me um, when I'm going to stop emerging and when I'm going to just <laughs> actually be a scholar. And so then it occurred to me that maybe I should just put scholar on, on my CV or whatever. Um, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> uh, I was just wondering if you're branching out of any other disciplines outside of design when you're when you're doing this. Yeah, I, I give a, a talk workshop at conferences and universities and meetups called unique ways of prototyping. Um, and, um, and for that, you know, because of the word prototyping, originally, I was communicating mainly to other designers or, or user experience people or researchers. And that frustrated me that I could only reach out to designers. I wanted to talk to more people. So I changed the name from unique ways of prototyping to unique ways of making so that people wouldn't be scared of the word prototyping. And, and then I could kind of connect with people. Um, some people saw it as an entrepreneurial thing. And so um, I just changed it to unique ways and registered it as a sole proprietorship. And then people started to kind of make sense of it a little bit, I guess. Um, and it started to, to move beyond being just this personal design project into this thing that I could talk to anybody about and essentially could be dinner table conversation. I hear you. So you started uniqueways.ca. That's right. Yeah. That, that, that was all you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That yeah. was me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought uniqueways.ca was like a group, a group of you. Okay. So it was just all you that, that essentially did that. That's pretty cool. Um, well, that, yeah. I mean, that kind of happened after, I mean, I was, I was, it had been a few years of, of delivering this this talk workshop called Unique Ways of Prototyping, um, and then and then registered it, and then and then and then and then registered UniqueWays.ca. Yeah, that's it's a good example though. It'll be a continuous kind of updating of of talks and workshops about Unique Ways. Awesome. Um, you said that you got accepted to Oxford, but my main question when I heard that was, well, why didn't you go to Oxford? Yeah, during pandemic, um, everything shifted. Um, 
you know, the, um, the, the program that I'm studying in at Simon Fraser University um, has a partnership with Wolfson College, which is a graduate school at University of Oxford. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we've been slated, or we were originally slated to, to go there in 2022 um, from SFU, but in collaboration with Oxford, and we would be in the Oxford campus um, um, taking lectures there. Um, because of pandemic, we actually don't know what's happening. It's going to depend on um, it's going to depend on what happens with pandemic. Um, but um, why didn't I go there? Because it's not uh, happened yet. It would be 2022. Okay, so the pandemic essentially sort of delayed that that portion of. No, it was uh, it was slated for 2022 originally. Oh, so either way, you weren't going until 2022. That's okay, right. I see. And now it's just unknown because of the pandemic whether it's going to start then or not. But hopefully right. it will because the border from the U.S. to Canada has kind of opened up, but from the Canadian side to the American side, it has not, right? Yeah, um, yeah, it's the big question about travel. I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I kind of like want to travel to these places and then kind of realize that it's, a, it's going to be really difficult. Um, but yeah, hoping that the UK will be one of the easier places to travel to. And so Oxford would be a possibility there. Mm-hmm. Do you think like, um, I mean, international travel is one thing, but then school by school, do you think it's going to be different as well? Or do you think once the borders open up everywhere, it's going to be like, oh, you can go to Oxford, you can go to uh, you know, like University of New York, you could go to Spain again. Like, do you think that all these schools will open up at the same sort of time? Or do you think, uh, for example, international travel may open up in the States and in the UK and around Europe, but then the schools might be hesitant on bringing international students? That's a great question. And it's something that I'm dealing with a lot right now. You know, ideally, you know, UK opens up, Oxford opens up, we can go there. I mean, that one instance of it would really make my day. Um, but I'm also doing the conference circuit. So um, I'm asked to speak at a conference in Australia in January, but they're closed, right? Australia is basically closed. So there's okay. no way for me to go there. Um, Greece, and then a smaller place in Spain in the middle of 2022. Hopefully that can work. I think they're fairly open. Um, yeah, who is open and who's closed? I don't know. Um, it, uh, it's kind of a crapshoot. I'm just crossing my fingers. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you can't go there? Um, for the conferences, they're blended. So I can do them online like a lot of us are oh, doing nice. with a lot of things these days. You know, yeah. it's one of the reasons I, I'm really happy to be here today on this podcast is because podcasts actually, in my opinion, haven't changed that much. We can still basically do them more or less the same way. And that um, that's a real attraction for me. Um, but I do stay I do stay on the basis for um, for for things like conferences, um, which do have the blended format now. Yeah, it's funny. I uh, when the pandemic first started, I've mentioned this in the podcast before, is that my podcast got put on hold because I started doing the podcast in-house, like normally my guests would be here with me in front of me. And um, during the pandemic, I had to stop doing that, but I really liked that format. Like I liked having the person in-house and uh, it was one of the things that I wanted to stick to, um, you know, three months after the podcast or not the podcast, the pandemic started, I saw that, hey, I either have to continue this podcast in another way or I just have to stop doing it because I haven't done one in like three months and what's going to happen? Cause this thing's, you know, the pandemic's going to be here for the long haul. So I opened it up a bit more. I said, you know what, we'll do zooms for now. And if down the road we can bring people in, we'll bring the people in. But 
I like the Zoom aspect because I can have guests who aren't necessarily from Vancouver or local to me. And now it sort of opens the door at the same time as maybe making it less intimate. Um, it still has that factor of bringing in something new or adding something new to the table. So moving forward, once the pandemic ends, I think I'm going to do both. I'm going to continue both the Zoom episode and the in-house. I know we were talking about having you come in, um, you know, like we were debating back and forth between that a little bit. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting how the dynamics of, I guess, our society has changed in every aspect, even including podcasting um, for the pandemic. But I guess in the sense of podcasting it's and conferences, it's kind of opened the doors a bit more because I don't have to fly to Milan to attend a conference in Milan, you know? Whereas before, if a conference was in Milan, they maybe weren't necessarily thinking about streaming it if they didn't have to right? Like not every event is streamed or live streamed or you could buy tickets online for it. But now even a past uh, guest of ours, um, Dallas Roden, who's a musician, she did a, or she was supposed to do, I don't know what happened because things kind of got more restrictive after she wanted to do this, but she wanted to do a live concert live streamed. So it was going to be at a club or bar or whatever, um, or a venue, but it was just going to be live streamed with no audience, you know, like in the place. I thought that was a pretty cool dynamic. And I thought like that was her way of also transitioning into this whole pandemic era, so to speak. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of like, we have to work with what we got now. And for some people that's going to be difficult. And for some people it's going to be an easy move. I think in the world of podcasting and conferences, it's a bit of an easy move. Um, yeah, for yeah. Sure. How did I you mean, get into? Go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, no you go. Go. Yeah, <laughs> not... yeah. Um, no, this. I, I, sorry, I just wanted to jump in because there's a really good points there. Um, you know, um, I'm I I, I uh, contribute a lot of my time to hackathons, local hackathons. Um, okay. For, first, I was doing it as a mentor, and then as a judge. And you know, a good hackathon would have a hundred people or a few hundred people. But when pandemic hit, and they and a hackathon was offered you know, it was thousands, tens of thousands of participants suddenly like massive scaling. And that really, you know, pandemic really changed that and really opened the doors for a lot of people that wouldn't be able to reach that many people through a hackathon. And I think that was really magical. Um, I jumped on board for one called, uh, called, uh, sorry, what was it called? Um, um, it was a hmm, brain fart. Um, there was a there was a, a hackathon around 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 uh, the virus and and named there were a lot of hackathons starting to be named around the virus and uh, and I joined one and they were piggybacking off of one that had just had ten thousand tens of thousands of people and you know of course they were happy they weren't expecting ten tens of thousands of people but they knew they would be in that ballpark mm -hmm. um, and so so I think. I think the pandemic really opened the doors for some people, especially artists like you're talking about to be able to reach more people. And that's, that's a fantastic thing. I, um, I, I feel guilty about saying about any of the good things that pandemic has brought in, but there are some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I still can't wrap my head around every aspect of the pandemic that even I have de dealt with, but I was one of the fortunate people, for example, who like already worked from home. 
like work remotely. I have my home office here and I do everything from here. So for me, it wasn't that big of a transition. And when my friends would complain like, oh man, I, I can't work from home or I get distracted or whatever. I was just like, what are you talking about? This is like normal life for me. So in my work life, the pandemic didn't really affect anything, but it affected small things like obviously going out to eat or the podcast, for example, small, minor differences in my life that were, you know, whereas other people were affected in major ways. I think like some of the best companies that like worked through the pandemic were companies that already had their entire staff working from home. One of those companies being WordPress. I don't know if you know this, but WordPress Automatic, which is like the company that runs WordPress, um, all their employees are all over the world working from home and they've been working remotely since day one. Um, And there's benefits to that too. I mean, like imagine opening up, up the floodgates to, hey, instead of having to hire people strictly in the United States or in Canada, you've now opened your talent to the entire world and you don't have to move anyone anywhere, right? Like you just have to leave them where they are and you just pay them, you know, their salary and they're working from home and you've got this amazing talent. So it kind of like even opens the floodgates to the type of talent that you could hire as opposed to limiting you to, hey, we're in Vancouver, so you have to move to Vancouver or you have to live in Canada or you have to be in the U.S., something easy, like an easy transition. Um, yeah, it, it's really crazy how the dynamics of the world have changed with this pandemic. But that being said, and, you know, all these events talked about and conferences and such, how did you get into the TED Talk aspect? So like, what happened there? How, like, you know, how did you get to to do that? Yeah, um, when I gave my TED Talk in 2019, it was before pandemic, um, and before anybody knew that anything like pandemic was going to happen. And, um, and coincidentally, there were a lot of ideas in there that were really related to the pandemic. Um, you know, if you haven't checked it out, I would encourage you to check it out. It's called uh, How to Feel at Home in the Airport. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, you know, airports have had this huge shift. Um, you know, I, I, to start it off, I was teaching at Emily Carr that time and uh, realized that they were organizing TED Talks and approached the, uh, the, the organizer. And, and, and actually, I, I realized that they were short on people. And so I was like, you know, I'll fill, I'll fill in for one of them. You know, if you need people, I'm here. And um, that translated into me going to auditions and eventually giving that talk. Um, you know, um, and, and learning some really interesting stuff about it that's really related to pandemic. For example, those TEDx talks are not primarily for the audience that's in the, uh, in the auditorium. They're actually spoken in a way that they translate well to being recorded. So that's the, those TED talks that you see in YouTube and stuff like that. Those are made for that purpose. Like when you see it on YouTube, it was a talk that was made ideally to perform really well in environments like YouTube. And it's just coincidental that there's a a room, a gigantic room full of people there um, watching it in person. And of course, it's a really magical thing to see a TED talk in person or even a TEDx talk in person. Um, But when you're seeing it on YouTube or whatever, you're really seeing the good stuff. Um, But mine, you know, really um, ended up being pandemic focused. And I've kind of tried to bring people back to it in that way. Um, because I know that they'll be able to connect with it even now. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I got to go to TEDx Vancouver. I forget what year. It wasn't too long ago. It was like four or five years ago. If you watch some of the TEDx Vancouver videos, in fact, I was in the front row. So every time they would finish the TED talk and it would pan to the audience, you would see my face and clapping. You know? <laughs> so I'm technically in a bunch of TEDx talks, like TEDx Vancouver talks. I'm just not the one talking there. Um, but I did see your TEDx talk and it was, it was actually like an interesting perspective for me because it was something that I didn't ever consider is that yeah the fact of how to feel home at an airport and then you kind of like dive into the details of that I'm not going to dive too much into it because I want people to go watch it so I'll put the uh, description to or the link to that video in the description of this video below uh, on the YouTube channel so if you're watching on YouTube you can click that and and go check it out but it's a really interesting perspective and I didn't expect that as a tech TED talk because most of the time you hear a TED talk it's like this informative like research-based like thing of something that somebody was working on but in your case it was more of a it was informative but it was kind of like more of an opinion right it was kind of like this is my perspective of the world right um yeah so I really appreciate it and it was it wasn't too long either it was quite a short quick uh summary of a, a um, a TED talk. It, it was really cool, but that was for TEDx Vancouver, or was that TEDx? That was TEDx Emily Carr. Emily Carr, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, yeah, it was opinion is a nice way to put it, but it was actually just kind of personal experience. Um, mm -hmm. My dad was a, a pretty successful photojournalist um, um, when photojournalism was a thing, um, shooting for Time and Newsweek and Fortune, based in. In Hong Kong, and so through through that work, he ended up traveling a lot and hitting a lot of the airports in in strange places and stuff like that. And I think his kind of um, um, overarching worldview about about things like that kind of rubbed off on me. And and so you know when I had to give an idea for what I wanted for my talk, I think that I just kind of spewed that out because that's kind of that was part of my upbringing. Mm -hmm. um and um and it just found its way into the talk but yeah very very opinionated but also honest yeah definitely yeah when i said uh opinion i meant like your your perspective like not necessarily opinionated right Absolutely. i don't know if opinionated comes across as a bad <laughs> bad notion or bad word but i just meant like you gave a perspective on uh the airport or airports in a sense that i never really like considered right even feeling at home in another city, right? Like you kind of extended it to that, right? Um, which was really, really cool. But you've come out with your book. You've been the scholar. You know, you do unique ways. What is next, you know, beyond, for example, going to Oxford? Um, what would be next on your plate to conquer? That's a great question. You know, um, I'm just finishing my first five-year plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it didn't occur to me that people actually made and followed five-year plans until about five years ago when I made my first one. And, and then kind of now five years on realized that it was a pretty good idea and I should do another one of those. Um, yeah, um, besides Oxford, but actually Oxford is a big um, next step for me. Um, my second book, which will come out next year, is called Emerging Scholar and Oxford. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and it will uh, it will include a little bit about that Oxford story and uh, and how that journey is looking, um, and hopefully I'll be able to continue that story in some way um, from the book to 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 whatever follows after that. 
um, you know, what comes next? Um, you know, the, the kind of obvious thing after a master's would be a PhD. And I think a lot of people ask me, um, you know, in, in, at least in a tangential way, if that's something that I want to do, um, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been heads up against a, uh, against a PhD pro research proposal, which is a total nightmare to write because, uh, because I don't know anything about research. So, <laughs> so I'm trying to write it uh, and trying to crossing my fingers that, I, that, that the people will like it. Um, you know, could that be a possibility of PhD? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that look, that's something that could fit into the next five-year plan. Um, interestingly, like with the conference circuit, a lot of them um, have only planned up till 2022. Mm -hmm. In the past, a lot of my plans have been built around these conferences, which plan way in advance. Um, but now, like looking at 2023 and beyond that, um, a, a lot of people simply haven't planned for it because they don't know what's happening with the pandemic. Um, so, so to be honest, I don't know what's coming next. Um, I would like to, uh, I would like to hope it's good things and definitely the book next year. Um, the second book will come out. Awesome. Um, going back to that five-year plan you talked about, can you give some detail in on that? I've never heard of the five-year plan. I've never planned for anything in my life. I just kind of hit the ball as it comes at me. So do I need to make a five-year plan? Like what, mm -hmm. what's great about this five-year plan? Break it down for me. Sure. I mean, pretty simply, like after I returned to Vancouver in 2014, after uh, being a lecturer overseas for several years, um, I um, I decided that I needed a five-year plan, um, and then and then won that first RBC Emerging Scholar Award, and that was the beginning of it. Um, when I got brought on at Emily Carr, I was like, okay, this can this can be how the five-year plan plays out. I can. I've won the award, and then if if I do four years at Emily Carr, that'll that'll amount to the five year plan, and and it did. Um, and then my next one was around around the masters, and and thinking about it in that way. Um, do you need one? You know, it's an interesting question. I am I am the uh, I am the non um, planning person in a way. Like I uh, I I don't I don't plan enough, and um, and when I did, when I, when I, when I realized that the five, five year plan kind of acts as a guide for you for what you're going to do for those five years. So if you're ever having an off day and then, and being like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go plant trees somewhere or something like that. You know, you don't actually follow through with that because it doesn't go according to your five year plan. And thankfully so. Right. So, um, you know, nothing wrong with planting trees, but, um, you know, um, the five-year plan kind of keeps you on path. It allows you to achieve certain things. Um, one downside is that it makes the time go by really quickly. I thought about making a 10-year plan next, and I realized that the 10 years would just gun by, and I would be a lot older. And <laughs> that's such a good thing. Um, but it does, it does give you some structure. Okay, I hear you. So for your five-year plan, you just like write down what you want to do for five years, and, and that's it. You put a timeline, and that's about the gist of it. For me, yeah. And for me, even having one or two things on that list um, kind of jinxes them a bit, you know? You're like, oh, I put it in the plan, but somehow life won't let me do that. Um, but it, it worked out, yeah. And it's, it's worked out so far. Yeah, I feel like that with a lot of things, though. I feel like, for example, even with the pandemic, I was like, man, I just started a podcast and now this happens and I can't do it. And then I got to <laughs> stop doing it. And it's, yeah, but I don't know. I just keep pushing through and I'm like, whatever. Yeah, let's just yeah, roll with the punches way. yeah but on tree planting i mean 
you should go check out episode 19 or 18 of the podcast. We had a tree plant documentary uh, filmmaker come in. And man, those those people, like, I don't know how they do their job. I do not know how they do their job. But you got to, first of all, check out the One Million Trees. Not to plug someone else, but check out the One Million Trees documentary. It's only like 30 minutes long. Opens your eyes to the entire world. But then also check out the podcast that we did with Everett Bumstead, who uh, is a documentary filmmaker and did one. He actually did the One Million Trees documentary um, about tree planting. And he won a bunch of awards recently. So props to Everett for that. Um, It's awesome. But okay, so Oxford next. You seem to jump around from like, you know, these various cities, right? Because you weren't in Vancouver up until, I mean, you were born here but you did leave and now you're back and now you plan to go to Oxford um is there a sense of you coming back and always having a foundation here in Vancouver or is it more of a sense of you're just going to go wherever the wind blows and takes you type of thing so if you head to Oxford is there a chance you might just stay out there or you may just go to another city and not really call Vancouver your home anymore yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, after I gave my TEDx talk, which was, you know, at Emily Carr, so here in Vancouver, I realized that I had a big audience in Vancouver suddenly, and I definitely wanted to to commit to to being able to reach them um, with these different topics. Um, kind of bringing bringing us back to what you were talking about before. Um, after I realized I had that audience with uh, with TED, I. I um, I emceed a panel uh, discussion about climate at Emily Carr. Um, which had some um, prominent Vancouver people on the panel um, talking about climate projects and some students talking about climate projects as well. And I was just kind of in a way moderating that. And uh, that was a way to continue reaching and telling my story um, while being in Vancouver. Um, yeah, Vancouver's home. And, you know, I, uh, I, I was one of those reckless people who thought as a teenager that there must be somewhere better than than where I was born. And so I started kind of going around being like, okay, let's try this place, that place, that place. And then in 2014, when I came back to Vancouver, I realized I'm going to put my feet down here. There's nowhere better than Vancouver. I I agree with you there. I mean, there are a few cities, for example, that I've been to where I'm like, I'd consider moving here for a while, but not forever. There's just too much in Vancouver that I love. Like people complain about the rain all the time or whatever, but we have, when I go place and I come back, the one thing that I notice like right away is the air quality, like the fresh air (laughs) and then the water, the drinking water. Those two things are like majorly better here in Vancouver than they are anywhere else in the world. But the two cities that I would consider moving to outside of Vancouver for whether it be short period, I would say short period, not necessarily long, maybe one of them a little longer than the other, but Barcelona being one, I just love the fact that there was just so much sun and then also just a completely different environment than I was used to. Um, But I wouldn't stay there for very long. And then another place, which I always wanted to, to move to and live to, if I could, I have friends out there, I go there, like, you know, I've been there like a few times, I try to go every time I go to Europe, is Amsterdam. Um, I freaking love that city. I, I love, well, well, I love Holland in general, like the Netherlands, but Amsterdam, for some reason, just speaks volumes to me. And it reminds me a lot of Vancouver. And I think that's part of the reason why I love it so much. 
they don't look the same. You know, one is full of canals, the other one is full of mountains. Um, but if you go, I don't know, have you ever been to to Amsterdam before? No, no. Yeah, you've done much of Europe. Yeah, you got to go to Amsterdam. It's it's amazing, and um, the people there and the culture is what reminded me most of Vancouver, other than the rain. Um, it's a beautiful city and just amazing. And for a while, I actually tried to to do my studies there, so get my BA there, but it's difficult to become an international student in uh, Holland. They actually require you to be able to speak Dutch fluently, which <laughs> I can't do. So it's kind of like, you got to learn the language, then you can go something like that. Yeah. It was, it was a bunch of brick walls, but if I could pick one or two places outside Vancouver to live, Amsterdam would probably be at the top of the list for sure. And it's got nothing to do with the marijuana stuff. You know what I mean? Like outside of that, it's got to do with the actual culture, society, people, the way the city is. Um, I just love it. I love it. I like your Barcelona choice a lot. I, you know, I, one of my first emerging scholar awards, maybe the notable one was at the Design Principles and Practices Conference in Barcelona at, mm-hmm. at a great school called Ali Sava. And uh, yeah, being there was great. Um, a few years later, I spent around that same time, I was spending some time in London and, um, and did a short trip to Barcelona, a second trip to Barcelona and, uh, and, and thought it was, um, thought it was fantastic. Um, my, um, my radar for, for realizing stuff is fantastic is a little bit skewed because when you spent, when you spent a lot of your life in Vancouver, it's not really fair. You don't really judge other places in a fair way anymore. Like, yeah, the clean air and the clean water are, are my number one and two choices as well. Um, but um, everything about Vancouver in a way is great and it's not a fair barometer for looking at other places, but I do think Barcelona is fantastic. Um, yeah, great, great, uh, great plug for the Netherlands there. Um, definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely considering that. Yeah, if you've never been, and honestly, there's so many cities in in Holland that, that you would appreciate. There's even small like university towns like Utrecht, which is like a, a very... I wouldn't say very small, but it's a fairly small city and it's more of a university city. It's like close to one of the universities there. Um, and that town like is just full of culture and history and just so, so much, just awesome architecture, even like very old buildings, like still being used. Um, windmills, like these classic windmills that you see, for example, on the cover of like you know little labels for like country farm something you know (laughs) it's got like this very elaborate when it's like that kind of stuff really cool place really cool people and I love Holland so shout out to the Holland folk but Vancouver recently has kind of um put I don't know sour taste in my mouth there's a lot of for example recently we we've encountered a lot of crime I don't know if this is just because of the pandemic or what but I feel like there's a lot more crime now there's a lot more um, social issues that we have to deal with here now, um, including, for example, the real estate problem, the rental problem, like just a lot of problems here. And um, I'm starting to see a light of uh, Vancouver, not necessarily going downhill, but it's the, the clear water is getting a little tingy, you know, it's, it's kind of changing colors here a little bit. So I hope oh, my dog just popped on me um so i hope that like things improve as the pandemic ends but i understand people who want to leave the city you know like i i hear it a lot recently and and now i really do understand it you know i i see the stories i see 
people walking with, you know, they just, they didn't steal a bike. They stole the bike rack with the bike on it. Have you seen these videos? No, I'm not sure if I even want to see these. <laughs> okay. So bike thieves in Vancouver on a whole other level. Now they don't steal the bike anymore. They steal, they unscrew the entire bike rack. Like that. Some of them have like are bolted down and they just unbolt them. And you see this guy walking with a bike rack with a bike attached to it. And he's going to figure out how to get the bike off later. You know, it's just, it baffles my mind how, and you know, people are just recording this while the guy is walking by and then it's just nobody stopping him. And obviously nobody wants to stop him because it's dangerous. Who knows what he has on him, but it's stuff like that, that really, um, bust my balls when it comes to Vancouver. So the negative side of it would be, would be those kinds of things that are happening more recently, not to mention gun violence that we've had recently with all the gang stuff going on. Um, so there are negatives to all the positives and those are Vancouver's negatives, um, in recent times, I guess you could say. Well, what I feel is that Vancouver is finally becoming a real city. I mean, I grew up here and it was a town. Yeah. There was no, it was, it was not metropolitan. It was not the place it is now. Yeah. Um, and that, that has pros and cons, of course. Um, in some ways I like it cause I can be walking around a financial district or something like that. And. I do see the range. I, I see the poorer people and the richer people, and they're all kind of mixed around. And um, and and I feel like I can be an any person in Vancouver, um, like I could in, in a Paris or a New York or something mm-hmm. like that. Whereas um, Vancouver was never like that. I mean, this is this is really new. Yeah. Um, so if if you like the um, the wild side of, of what some of the bigger cities have to offer. I think Vancouver is starting to uh, find its place there. Um, but I think what's ter- what's terrible is that uh, Vancouver got expensive really quick before it became this big city. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you said, the, the property prices and things like that were, were, were overpriced. Um, and, and, and not that they weren't worth it because Vancouver is great, but it didn't really make sense to price Vancouver at the price of a Paris or, or a Barcelona or whatever. Um, but, but, but now it's starting to make sense, I think, as Vancouver grows. And, and of course, the pros and cons of that. Yeah, population obviously makes a, a huge difference on, you know, the real estate prices and, and rental prices and all that stuff. But you're right. When it comes to Vancouver, we're still a smaller emerging kind of like major city, for example, right? Uh, if you lined up, for example, San Francisco per, you know, like in ratio to Vancouver at its time when it first started emerging, I'm sure the rental prices weren't that bad or the real estate wasn't that bad. But I have this sort of notion with any major city as it grows. Yeah, the the rental prices and, you know, the marketplace as far as real estate also goes up and grows naturally. You know, like in New York and Manhattan, I've said this many times, a parking stall in Manhattan costs a million dollars. It just does because the real estate there, there's none and it's in high demand. So the same will go, you know, supply and demand. There's no supply, but there's high demand. You're going to ask for whatever price you want. In Vancouver, it's sort of a similar circumstance, but we're we we're a city that doesn't offer as much as, for example, New York, or we don't have as high as a population of you know as Paris, or all these other places, right? So yeah, I, I see the 
the double-edged sword to that sort of circumstance where on one hand, it's like a great place to live. It's a demanding and high sought after place to live. It's always on the top 10 places to live in the world lists. You know, we always hear like Vancouver's number one again, Vancouver's top 10 again. And, and for all great reasons, but then you realize, well, if I'm comparing Vancouver to these other major cities that have similar range in these prices, it doesn't really make sense. Going back to San Francisco, they have a huge hub of big tech companies, not to say Vancouver doesn't have an emerging tech sector, right? Because there are a lot of companies coming here, but in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, as well as in California in general, that tech sector is much more massive. And you've got companies like Facebook out there that pay their employees a huge sum of money you know, one of my closest friends, Owen, uh, he, well, not my closest friend, but one of my friends, Owen, actually, I shouldn't say that. One of my closest friends Owen, is what I'm going to go with, uh, works for Facebook. He worked at LinkedIn, you know, he worked at all these awesome tech companies and, you know, they give them huge signing bonuses, you know, signing bonuses that are more than some people would make in four years of working, five years of working in American dollars. So, they might pay a pretty penny for property, but they're also getting a pretty penny for their dog. So it kind of averages out, you know, their living versus their rental versus their property, you know, real estate purchase all kind of still falls in line. In Vancouver, you know, the tech sector is low. The bonuses, signing bonuses are lower. You know, the pay is lower and it's in Canadian dollars most of the time. Then you have to worry about my rent still being that top tier rent, my how price of my house real estate being that top tier house, uh, price. So, so that's the issue and concern mainly when it comes to Vancouver real estate and the Vancouver market for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can relate crazy. to that. I mean, you know, um, I guess at some point I started realizing that the rent prices were going crazy, and you know, I would be on the train going to the airport. And, um, you know, riding the train for a bit and, you know, it's underground and then it's above ground. And then eventually you get to a point where it's pretty empty. It's like parking lots. There's not much around. And I would be looking at it kind of confused. I would say, how is this possible that people aren't exploiting this kind of commercial possibility? Now, I think you take the train to the airport and pretty much all the way through, there's, there's some kind of commercial attempt going on there. Um, so you have Vancouver's changing in that way for sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of major developments outside of Vancouver too. I mean, you like you go to Burnaby or whatever, right? Like that whole Brentwood development. Um, you go to these other suburban cities that skirt around Vancouver and sure there are developments, but there's still areas of Vancouver that are unfinished or untouched. Like that whole Georgia viaduct part, right? And then right next to um, Science World, it kind of has like that barren land where i think the indy 500 was we had indy 500 back in the day right i'm not just um yeah that, the, that's the, a that's a race car thing right yeah you remember <laughs> that right you were here during that time <laughs> i must it must be somewhere in my memory yeah yeah they well we had it every year every two or three years they would come out here to vancouver and they would set up the track like in downtown vancouver um, but then we got, we eliminated it like city council or something, or we didn't sign up a new contract. And then 
and that land has kind of sit empty. You kind of have Cirque du Soleil come fill it up every now and then with like their tents and whatever events, but it kind of just sits there and does nothing still 10, a decade later, maybe even more. Um, so yeah, there are parts of Vancouver empty patches that you still wonder why is, why is this still like this, but it's just, you know, I think over time, things just change over time and with the right people on board, then, then that's when you get change. And I don't think right now we have the right people on board. It's cool. It's super cool to hear you talk about Vancouver in that way, you know, because I grew up here, I was so close to Vancouver and couldn't see it in that objective way. Like there's this and this and this bit. I think it was the artist Douglas Copeland who really um, introduced me to this idea that Vancouver has some like really um, identifiable qualities to it. He did a great book a long time ago called City of Glass about Vancouver. Mm. And, um, you know, it would talk about how people go on road trips to Seattle or, or how there's like, uh, how you can get like any kind of ethnic cuisine that you want in Vancouver very easily and for very cheap. And, um, and yeah, and like how the, 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 the race, the race, um, the, the race cars came here or something like that. Yeah. I think, I think, I think Vancouver has a lot of that, doesn't it? Yeah. But then you go to any other city and people are like, well, we have that too. And we have it every day. You know, like New York has Broadway. Like go see a play like every, down the whole stretch. Like you'd see whatever play you want. So we're still like at a fundamental stage in a sense. But yeah, we do have that character. For example, we have Whistler, which is like an hour and a half away by car world-renowned people like flock to Whistler from around the world they wish they could get to it you know it's like some people's dreams to go there we can't even get off our butts to go like an hour and a half out there like it's just like it's our backyard it's like oh I've seen that before I've been there before I don't need to go there so it's just funny to me because I have friends who live abroad and they're like man how often do you go out there during the winter time I'm like never like maybe once first of all I'm not going to pay 400 bucks for a lift ticket for like a part of a day right like it's just not gonna happen and then like get my butt up there I gotta stay overnight because I obviously don't want to ski for just like six hours if I'm gonna go there I want to be there right so there's all these elements that are like that make our city great but then there are all these other elements that exactly counter that and it's always got to do with money and price right so Whistler great we have the best ski place in the world an hour and a half from our house price (laughs) prevents me from wanting to go there right whereas if you're not from here like you're not going to think two seconds to pay 400 bucks for a lift ticket or whatever it is um because it's a once in a lifetime thing for you it's the best mountain in the world like that's what you're there for i think part of part of me is like we don't appreciate what we have the other part of me is we don't appreciate what we have because it costs too much money. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, you know, when I did my first five-year plan, um, I realized that part of that was going to be being more Vancouver, being fitting in with Vancouver, with Vancouver people, and even not really truly Vancouver people, but the idea of Vancouver people, as you're talking about. Um, I took up kayaking. Um, I started kayaking, you know, like once a week, twice a week, got a pass, got a certification um, and, and started doing that. And I was, and, you know, I wouldn't do it before because of the price, not that I couldn't afford it, but it didn't make sense. Um, But I was like, screw it. I'm going to do this. So I started doing it. And, 
I realized like being on the water like that, like there's a great place in North Vancouver called Deep Cove where you can, yeah. you can do kayaking. Um, and, um, and I go up there and, you know, every time I get on the water, I'm like, wow, this is, this is why I'm here. How come I didn't do this before? There's a definitely this, this idea, especially if you, you spent a lot of time in Vancouver or grew up here or something like that, that, that things are out of your range, out of your, out of your, out of the possibility for you in some ways, like kayaking. Yeah, it would be great. And that's what they put on the marketing, but nobody actually does it. Mm -hmm. But then I went to do it and I was like, wow, this is uh, just as good as the marketing. Um, Yeah. I've always been really lucky to live in kind of the central parts of Vancouver where everything's kind of easy to access. I guess that's just, I mean, maybe I was born lucky in that way. Um, Often I think about that, like how life is kind of a lottery ticket like that. And, yeah, you don't get to decide anything. It just kind of magically happens that you happen to get this privilege or that privilege and not this one or that one. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's that that notion is also crazy to me in general, because mm-hmm. I always found that like that was a huge aspect in my life, too, where I would think back. I'm like, wow, like my parents could have gone anywhere in the world and I would have had to like live there. And I was fortunate enough that they moved to Vancouver when I was like two years old. So I grew up here and I got to grow up in a, grew up in a great city, but some people grew up in like crappy cities or crappy, not to say crappy countries, but yeah, countries with a lot of like distress or problems in them. Right. You know, I come from a country that at the time had a lot of problems. So, uh, that factor is huge for me. And imagine the percentage, like if you could actually like break down the percentage of luck that people have just in the place that they're born or raised and also not, not having the, I guess, capability to say otherwise, right? Like you're right. Like I didn't get to pick to be here. I didn't get to pick what school I went to. You know, I didn't get to pick even my teachers or or anything like that, right? And I just grew up and here I am today, right? Because of my environment and, and everything that's happened, you know, like I ended up here type of thing. But, but yeah, that's one thing that always seems crazy to me is how much little control people have over their lives than they think they have over their lives. And it happened yeah. the other day, I was thinking about this guy there's a, a news um, reporting that a horrible story. A gentleman died at a McDonald's drive-thru. Did you hear about this? No. Okay. Yeah. So guy just morning, going to work, getting his morning coffee and breakfast, probably goes to pay for his McDonald's and he drops his card out the door, like accidentally, like, whatever so he opens the door and goes to pick up his credit card and when he did that I guess his car wasn't in park and maybe he let go of the gas and the car rolled forward and he got crushed like between his door like he got wedged between his door because I guess his door hit something and wedged him between and he just got crushed and died like imagine going through a McDonald's drive-thru and like you pass away because you were trying to get a coffee and a donut or, or whatever. Right. So, so even, even that luck of the draw is like pretty harsh. Right. 
in, in a tangential way, I think that's what's happening with a lot of the pandemic situation in Vancouver. It's like one day there's this rule and then the next day there's that rule. So like one day you go to the restaurant and they're like, can I see your vaccine passport and proof of your double vax? And you're like, what, when did this happen? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. I mean, we're lucky enough to have a new news system that spreads across across most of us, even through social media and stuff like that. So we we hopefully find out about this stuff before it ha before it kind of occurs to us. Um, but yeah, definitely like like uh, randomly randomly um, random accidents are, are are scary. I think you know. <laughs> It, I think at some point it occurred to me that um, there's always an element of chance and luck in, in, in life. Um, you know, you cross the street and yes, a car may come and you may get hit. Um, but what are the chances of that? Um, do you take that chance or not? You never cross streets again or not. I mean, it's up to you. Yeah. Well, um, you're not thinking about it even. Yeah. Like you're yeah. never really thinking about it. But yeah. if you actually think about it, you realize like I have very little control over my life. Yeah. Like yeah. I could dictate whether I'm going to go do A or B or whether I'm going to go attend Oxford or whether I'm not, mm. right? For me, but it's even, always him. Even before that, decisions before that lead to it or th situations that you're put in, you know, are, are what lead to that sort of like decision-making, right? Like you growing up in Vancouver led you to have the opportunity to go to school, to better yourself and whatever, and then end up at Oxford, right? Um, whereas another person might grew up in another country, not have the same things as you and will never have the opportunity to go to Oxford, no matter how hard they try because of the situation and circumstance that they've been put in uh, when they were born and when they grew up, right? Yeah, you know, being born, you with Canadian, being born with a Canadian passport is just winning the lottery, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. I like to say you make your own luck, but to an extent, you, you don't have control. I absolutely agree. Yeah, I feel like it's it's even more than 50% that it's out of your control. I think day-to-day -day decisions, yeah, they're they're in your control, but there are factors that are in the background that you don't consider that have allowed you to get to the points where you're at to make these smaller decisions, which then help, you know, which then allow you to affect your life. Like I decided what to study when I went to university, right? But like the fact that I got to university, you know, had to do with me having a good education and me being able to go to good schools and me growing up here as opposed to like a country with no education system at all or a crappy education system. Also right? randomly like like choosing the right thing and it happening to be the right choice in the long term. Like, you know, you chose to study something and here you are, you have a podcast, which is a very timely good thing to have these days. Mm -hmm. But like, probably when you were going to school, there was no such thing as a podcast. So randomly, you chose something that kind of lucked you into a good situation. And I'm no different. Um, yeah. Um, and you know, does part of this come from intuition or some innate ability? Or where does it come from? You know, maybe these are some of the bigger questions that we all ask. But yeah, absolutely. Like, luck plays a huge factor. Um, I guess where, where you can, you try to make your own luck, but it's hard. Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So book one is out. Book two is coming. Are books going to be like popping off the shelves? Like as you know, once you finish book two, are you going to start on a third book? Is there something else that you have in mind that you want to do? And are these books always going to be wrapped around your education? Or do you think that there is a chance, for example, you might go down and 
even go deeper and write like a novel, for example, or something outside of, uh, I guess, the education platform side of things? That's a good question. Um, you know, um, I, I'm a stubborn person and I never thought that writing a book was anything meaningful. Um, and so it never occurred to, me, occurred to me for most of my life to ever think about writing a book or even like, why would I want to do that kind of thing? Um, and then I was on this great podcast, um, Running Wild with Christine, and, um, and she had a guest and they were both kind of um, 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 spitballing, I guess, about the books they had written. And I was like, wow, books are, are meaningful. <laughs> you know, that's something that I should do. You know, that's like actually a good, that's, a, that's actually a big achievement. The big achievement about it actually occurred to me after I did it. I was like, because people were like, Thomas, you wrote a book. That's a big thing. There's no small thing. I was like, yeah, no, I don't believe you. Next. <laughs> and then somebody else would say the same thing. And eventually yeah. you talk to enough people and they're like, yeah, okay, they were right. I was wrong. Fine. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think once you start writing, um, you kind of never stop. So, and especially through, through SFU, um, I've, uh, I've, I've been, uh, I've had the impetus to keep writing and um, yeah, with the second book and then, and then, and then, yeah, I think you just, you start writing and then you just keep doing it. Um, to be honest, I don't like writing very much. So for me to have to keep doing it is a little bit torturous, but um, it may just be um, that way. Uh, you mentioned SFU, like Simon Fraser University for people who didn't clue into the abbreviation, I guess. Um, do they like sort of uh, provide you with any funding or anything for anything that you've been doing? Yeah, I've been really lucky. You know, um, I, you know, I, I didn't have a way to pay for my master's for a long time. And, um, and I was just kind of looking around. I was like, you know, maybe I can get scholarships to do it. And, but I was always suspect of people who said stuff like that. They're like, yeah, they haven't even been accepted. They don't know what they're going to study. Their grades aren't that good. And they're planning to get scholarships. Like that sounds a little bit weird. Um, so what happened for me is I found a, a master's at SFU that was affordable for me, got in and started taking the classes and then started receiving funding from the school to take those classes through graduate fellowships. Um, and so lucked into, into getting help to pay for it but that was only after I found a way that I could pay for it myself. I think this is part of how it works. Um, you need to kind of prove that you would, you would do whatever it takes. And then once you prove that, then people start giving you handouts and it's kind of backwards. You're like, yeah, but I don't need this anymore. I can do it myself. And they're like, okay, well then we'll help you. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what? Um, but but I, I, SFU has been really generous and graduate labor studies has been really generous in helping me to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, through the graduate fellowships. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think like that whole um, mantra of if you build it, they will come. But is there anything outside of, for example, the school funding and your own motivation that sort of, makes you work harder or do more or want to do more? Yeah, I mean, I'm a designer. I'll always be a designer. In my teens, I was being educated as a designer. And during those formative years, that's what I came to know. Um, and, and with everything I do, it'll always be around that. And that's something I love. And it's just something that's, that's who I am. Um, for me, it's always like, 
would you do this anyways, right? And I try to pick as many of those things as I can because uh, it's less reliant on, on kind of luck or chance or whatever. Um, you know, um, the book, I was like, okay, um, it may not become a New York Times bestseller right away, um, but I, I want to do it and, uh, and I'm going to find a way to do it. And people were like, no, you can't do it or it costs this much money or you're going to have this and that problem. I couldn't do it. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to do it. I'm going to do it. And I found a way. And then once I found a way, I was like, okay, I can do it. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And I did it and I was happy to do it. Yeah. The, were there other benefits? Of course. And that came later. That was, but sometimes there aren't. Um, I do like experimenting i like the peter thiel zero to one thing where you're trying something from the ground up and um and you don't know what will happen and sometimes it does fail in fact most of the time it does fail i think those are good uses of time and uh, once you once you do find something that succeeds if you do um, um you you do it because because you well in part because it was the one thing that succeeded but in another part because um because you love it and and that's why you do what you do um, I think that that ends up being number one. Um, it's funny in, a, in previous podcasts, I've, I've said that I was raised with this idea that you should do what you love and the money will follow. Um, and, and then later in life, I realized that wasn't true. But now <laughs> it, it's kind of come full circle. And now I'm like, just do what you love. It doesn't actually matter that much if the money, and of course this is a privileged situation, but like the money part of it, um, when you don't focus on that and you focus on constantly doing what you love, things do fall in place, I think. Um, and, or even if they don't, you're happy anyways. And you know, that's a big thing. Definitely. Yeah. And that's exactly like my, my end of it with the whole YouTube thing was I just did the videos for fun out of love and money and just, I don't know, growth continued from there. Right. Like, yeah no it, the podcast is called no fun city not because it revolves around vancouver or vancouverites that was never my intention from the beginning the podcast is called no fun city because i own nofuncity.ca and i originally just wanted to do something with the domain which i still haven't done because <laughs> everything is on youtube and on the other podcast platforms so you know coming next as the podcast grows there will be a nofuncity.ca website the domain is already owned by me but the reason why it's called no fun city is simply because i'm like oh it's catchy and also i own nofuncity.ca so i could use it on that website right but because i called it nofuncity.ca people related it to vancouver right then it kind of became this like oh it's a vancouver podcast so I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's a Vancouver podcast, even though some of my guests won't be from Vancouver and are not from Vancouver. That's just how it, it worked out to be. And, and I'm happy it worked out that way because it, it gave me that unique uh, niche aspect of, you know, I'm not just like another generic podcast. Like we do have a bit of a niche here and we do just kind of relay things to the city of Vancouver and, and my love for the city that I grew up in. But also I could do anything outside of that because it's not like we're calling it the Vancouver podcast and it's all about Vancouver, right? Um, but yeah, that's how that worked out. <laughs> I think that's a bit modest though. I mean, you have really great branding, for example. Um, that's that's got to drive people to uh, to check you out. Thank you. I actually did the branding myself because okay. I'm, I'm a designer as well. So I got my BA in graphic design and marketing. Yeah, from uh, Kwantlen Polytechnic. Shout out to Kwantlen and uh my teachers out there but yeah the 
the logo, the bird, the the crow. I was trying to think like what could be Vancouver, but not to Vancouver and still represent me. I want to stay, say this background story of like the podcast mm-hmm. we're going to talk about myself now <laughs> um uh so i'm like what could i do that's not going to speak volumes as vancouver but isn't also going to be super specific but will still look cool and people will still identify it as a vancouver thing so i picked the crow cross like raven you know quote unquote um and then that just represents sort of my outlook on the city but also like our city is full of crows right and then it identifies with like each person, whether they be on the podcast or in the community or in the city as the crow. And if you look really closely in the eye of the crow, it's actually a cityscape. It's like looking out into the city, right? I really went in depth with the thought of on that, right? But I'm actually, I might be updating this. The crow will remain, but I might be modifying some things to it. Um, not now, but down the road, I'm already thinking of uh, ways to sort of expand the brand but that's actually one comment I get a lot is people really like the the brand identification with, that goes with the podcast so I appreciate that yeah what typeface is that it looks like Fedra Fedra sounds no it is you... Clavica okay Clavica I do yeah. know Clavica actually yeah that yeah. was uh, that was big at one point uh, in design there's a lot of really great stuff happening with community building you know through meetups through hackathons and things mm-hmm. like that more and more designers young designers people just interested in design are getting together and they're making things happen in a kind of a societal way and also um, also in these smaller local groups and things like that they're they're building they're building new building blocks for design and I think design really needed that not only in Vancouver and Canada, where it did need that especially, but also globally all over the world. And I think more and more people as design becomes dinner table conversation are, are, are coming together and, and saying, let's do this and putting it into action and building stuff that's out there. Um, these days, when you search for some place for belonging within the design world, you can easily find it. And yeah, there are good ones and bad ones, but inevitably you will find good ones because there's mm-hmm. so much of it now. And that's a huge shift from what we had, um, um, you know, decades ago. Um, we've, it, it, design has really kind of ramped itself up in that way. I'm sure there are even Facebook groups or, yeah, Vancouver meetup groups uh, or even Vancouver design nerds. They're a great, you know, option um, that host events and sort of like uh, do explorations of different design disciplines and sort of uh, put together events around that. And I've been to their events and they're great. I think this is a good chance to give a shout out to some really great community building around design that I've seen and been a part of. Um, I've been a speaker at Van UX, which is Vancouver's user experience meetup, um, Van UXR, which is Vancouver's user experience research meetup. Um, I think it was last week I was I was uh, lucky enough to speak with um, or to speak at um, Calgary UX. Um, you know, just by chance, um, they were supportive of my ideas and, and really great communities for those, you know, really people really coming out wanting to learn good, good groups of 100 or so people at those. Also with the hackathons, especially the, the UBC based ones, the ones in Vancouver, NW Hacks, um, XT Hacks, um, Solder School of Business at UBC runs one called Biz Hacks. Those are all really fantastic organizations. A lot of young people really just trying to make stuff happen. I would really encourage you to check those out because uh, they're doing good things. I'll definitely do that. <clears throat> there is one event where I'll say I had a great time. 
and I volunteered for them as part of the GDC, which was Creative Mornings. And Creative Mornings is kind of part of an umbrella of the GDC, but it's once a month lecture. I mean, it's kind of changed now due, due to the pandemic, but it was held at SFU downtown. You know, they, they have a theater there. Uh, it was once a month, early in the morning, on uh, the first Friday of every month. And you get breakfast. So there's usually breakfast sandwiches and coffee and whatever, all free. Nothing, you don't pay for anything. The event is free. You just have to RSVP. Um, and then you go sit down and there's an interesting person like yourself or like another designer or somebody who's done something awesome and creative and inspirational. And they talk for about 30 minutes and there's a Q&A after and you leave inspired. And it's a great way to start the month and start a Friday. Second year shout out to Creative Mornings. I think it's a great um, it's a great attempt with what they do. Um, Casey Franco and acquaintance will be speaking there soon. Um, really, really fantastic stuff. And yeah, the the free breakfast is really nice too. I know Casey. I actually uh, worked with her a little bit on one of her projects. She did a recent research project a few years back about homeless people, um, and I was helping her out with that. So she's a she's a great lady. I, I uh, have mass rest uh respect for her she she's amazing we have the yeah. same major i'm in the same program as what she did oh really yeah oh so do you know the the research thing that i'm talking about a little bit yeah she finished her ma i know that yeah you you should okay. definitely i think yeah for the audience definitely check out check out casey franco she does great stuff um she uh uh has been in the vancouver design scene forever and has always been a prominent figure um yeah definitely definitely good person there yeah, definitely. She's uh maybe I'll have her on the podcast one day to talk about her her uh research project uh based around homelessness. You should do that. Yeah, definitely. It's crazy small world. I knew that we would have some people like in common, but when was the last time you attended a creative mornings? Um, not since it was in person. Okay. Yeah. So you may have seen me there then. It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. I, I mean I haven't volunteered in a while but I used to be behind the cameras and I would be the one editing the videos like once small world day. yeah yeah totally yeah I did the most amount of work of everyone there I swear <laughs> <laughs> I swear I everyone only worked for like one or two hours when they were there but I had to go home and edit the videos which was like an extra four or five hours of my time so whatever you're, you're a workhorse you've got yeah. this you've got your YouTube it's endless <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well, hey, it did help me, right? Because I did those videos and then it sort of led to this. So yeah, it kind of domino affected for sure. Um, but before we wrap up, is there anything else uh, you want to talk about or mention? No, just to repeat, check out my TED Talk. It's a two minute TED Talk. It's translated into 18 languages, how to feel at home in the airport. Um, if you have a, a, a extra five bucks, Grab my, um, grab my book, it's Emerging Scholar Gratitude of an Award Recipient. You can get it wherever you get books. And if you have no money and no time, check out my Twitter. It's on Thomas underscore tweet. I tweet there all the time. Awesome. All of those links will be in the description of the video or below, yeah, in the video on YouTube. But uh, I can't post it anywhere else, like on Spotify and stuff. It doesn't let me do that kind of stuff. So... <coughs> If you're listening to this, head to the No Fun City Podcast YouTube channel. Just search it on Google. Um, and all those links will be in this video description. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for doing this, man. Really appreciate it. It's awesome meeting you and just talking to you. And I'm happy that we connected. 
And uh, yeah, hopefully, we, you know what, if you go to Oxford and come back, maybe we'll have to have you back on to talk about your experiences there and your, your new book. Well, I want to see your space in real life. I mean, that looks like a Zoom background, but that's all real stuff, isn't it? That's all real stuff. That's yeah. all real stuff. I got yeah. to see that. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely. So up, actually, you know what, I'll tell you real quick. Up here in this corner is a poster from Madison Square Garden Black Keys concert designed by Shepard Ferry. And I think only like 500 of them were made, signed by Shepard Ferry and like marked. So that's what that is there. These bottles that you see, most of them are uh, by Driftwood Brewery. But the person who makes them, you actually might know, is uh, Richard Hatter of Hired Guns Creative. Do you know that? Okay. So um, he's a, a buddy of mine and I met him through the GDC and stuff. And he does these epic, like really well done artistic, like, uh, bottle labels he's won countless awards but the ones that he does for driftwood are specifically really well done and they've got some nice sheen to them and just very artsy so every time he makes a bottle a new one i go pick it up and i pop it on my shelf and as you can see he has countless bottles there <laughs> so yeah he actually came out with one new one this week and i'm picking it up uh tomorrow so yeah, I'm not necessarily a fan of beer, but I'm definitely a fan of artwork. And he is one of my favorite um, artists. So I just support him by picking up the beer bottle and popping it on my shelf. And yeah, and then in those case, that case is uh, sponsor stuff. So stuff from the YouTube channel sponsors, I just pop it in there and yeah, leave it there for a good notion. But yeah, you definitely have to come check out the space. We will have you back for sure. Um, once you go to Oxford, come back, get that other book going. We'll have more stuff to talk about. But for now, this is the end of the No Fun City podcast. Peace out. Today's episode of the No Fun City podcast is brought to you by Quest Trade. There's a new world of investing where the fees are low and you come first. It's time to switch. Head over to questtrade.com to check out do-it-yourself, self-directed investing. Take matters into your own hands, build your own investment portfolio with a self-directed account and save on fees. Make your money work harder. Questrade is Canada's fastest growing online brokerage with over 21 years experience in the Canadian market, $18 billion in assets under administration, and a nine-time winner of the best managed companies in Canada. And you could rest assured knowing that your money is in good hands. They go above and beyond to protect your account with an additional $10 million in private insurance so you know your money is safe. For more information, check out questtrade.com. Just use the link in the description below.